Well, good morning. I want to begin today with a question. Where is the easiest place to be a good Christian? That's right, in church. When you're with all your Christian friends, with fellow believers, it's easy to look like a good Christian. But if you really want to know what kind of Christian someone is, ask their spouse or their children or their boss or the people with whom they work. What happens to your Christianity when the mask is off, when the guard is down, when you're at home? What would your spouse or your children or your boss or your coworkers say about what kind of follower of Jesus you really are? We're going to be talking about when the gospel hits home this month, and we're going to start these first couple of weeks on the great subject of marriage. This is a good time to invite all of you to attend our Returning to Eden conference on October 22nd and 23rd for married couples. Uh, Kate and I are going to be celebrating 30 years of marriage at the end of this year, and we're always looking for ways to grow and not to take our marriage for granted. So we're looking forward to being at this conference, and the pastoral team is praying that at least 50 couples will join us in returning to Eden on October 22nd and 23rd. There's going to be childcare and a special children's go conference uh, that's going to be held simultaneously. So uh, children from nursery through eighth grade will be not only taken care of, but edified and nourished through this. So all you need to do is get ready and sign up. There's a table in the back today for Return to Eden. I'd encourage you to participate in that. And the Bible has a lot to say about the institution of marriage, and that's because God invented it. Because he invented it, he has authority over it. And because God invented it and has authority over it, we should really care about what God has to say and teach us about marriage. I realize when we approach a subject like marriage, there's no one in this room who doesn't have some feeling or some opinion about it. I'm thinking of maybe some little girls in the room who are thinking about what your wedding dress is going to look like when you walk down the aisle. Or maybe some little boys right now are thinking, marriage? Yuck. I don't want to have anything to do with that. And there are teenagers who are starting to have romantic feelings, and the subject of marriage might seem mysterious, enchanted, or even haunting, uh, depending on what your experience has been like in your family growing up. Uh, Some of us have had uh, family experiences where marriage was modeled in a beautiful way, and it seems admirable and attractive to us. Uh, Others of us have grown up in a war zone, And we're very wary about marriage because we've seen the wreckage in our own families. Uh, In our church today, there are widows and widowers who look back on their marriages with a whole plethora of emotions. Uh, For some, the memories of the marriage that they once had are just charmed with delight. And for others, those memories are tinged with uh, feelings of disappointment and the pain of Uh, remorse, uh, along with the loss of a spouse, sometimes a lot of hurt is left in its wake. We have brothers and sisters in this room who've been divorced, 
And the amputation of that one flesh relationship still leaves them with phantom pain. The very mention of marriage is difficult. For some, hearing about marriage is just another painful reminder of something other people have, but you've never been given to enjoy. A few of you are thinking, if only I could have another chance, if I could do it over again, I'd be a much better husband or wife. Others are thinking, if I could do it over again, I would never have gotten married. Some of you are just hanging in there for the kids. You've lost hope that there could be a flourishing marriage in the future. Others are probably thinking, what's the big deal about marriage? Isn't it just a meaningless piece of paper? I guess there are a few of you who are feeling the awkwardness of coming to a sermon about marriage after having fought all the way down Randall Road on your way to church this morning. Jesus is here. Jesus comes to preach peace to those of you who are far off from his ideal of marriage. And Jesus comes to preach peace to those of you who are near. He is a mighty Savior. He is an ever-present help in our time of trouble. He's a restorer of what is broken. He's a repairer of the breach. And to all who are feeling their weakness and need and who hold up their hands and say, Lord, help, he is ready to do just that. So please turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 5, verses 21 through 33. I'm so glad that we can come to this familiar passage that many of us feel like we already know what this passage says and, and we've got it all figured out. And there's some who the very mention of certain words in this passage just make us want to turn off our ears and not listen. I'm so glad that today we're coming to this familiar passage after having been through the book of Ephesians. And we've heard about how God has a plan to bring everything in the universe together under the headship, under the authority of King Jesus. And God is showcasing his power and his authority to do that by bringing together groups of people who once were hostile to one another into a one new humanity under the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what Ephesians has been all about. Unity is a huge theme in Ephesians. The unity of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit on display in the unity of believers in the body of Christ. People who were once alienated, now reconciled. If the gospel is powerful enough to bring unity in the church, it's also powerful enough to bring unity in our homes and in our marriages. And if that's God's desire for our marriages, that means there's hope. If we belong to Christ, there is hope for our marriages. I love this statement from Richard Koken. Among God's people, marriage is no longer a battleground, but a field of victory, where sinners can remain united to each other in the service of Christ. I love that. It's a field of victory where we can be united to one another, remain united to one another in the service of Christ. Indeed, it is given by God as the most powerful illustration of Christ's covenant love for his church. So this passage this morning is not only for people who are married. 
And it's not just about earthly marriages. No, Paul himself, look at what he tells us in verse 32. He says, I am talking about Christ and the church. That's what I'm talking about here. So marriage is a symbol of something greater than itself. It's a symbol of Christ and the church. You don't need to be married to a human being in, able, in order to experience ultimate joy and happiness. But you do need to be married to Christ in order to experience ultimate joy and happiness. So Church of the Lord Jesus Christ, may the Spirit of Christ give us ears to hear what he is saying to us in this passage. May he help us to see the beauty and power of the gospel as we read Ephesians 5, beginning at verse 21 through verse 33. Hear the word of God. Submitting to one another in the fear of Christ. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. Because the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church. He is the savior of the body. Now as the church submits to Christ... So also wives are to submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her to make her holy, cleansing her with the washing of water by the word. He did this to present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or anything like that, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands are to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hates his own flesh, but provides and cares for it, just as Christ does for the church, since we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This mystery is profound. But I am talking about Christ and the church. To sum up, each one of you is to love his wife as himself, and the wife is to respect her husband. Spirit of God, who breathed upon creation and brought order out of the chaos, please breathe into our hearts and into our homes. Let the beauty and power of the gospel shape our marriages. For the glory of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. I don't usually begin a Bible reading in the middle of a sentence, but I did that deliberately with verse 21 because that is what this whole section from chapter 5, verse 21, through chapter 6, verse 9, is all about. We're going to be learning about glad, godly submission in our relationships, in our marriages, between children and parents, and in our workplaces. And today we're seeing how this submission is going to be played out in marriage. But before you get up and leave, please hear me out. I know I'm about to step on a grenade here. I know that the word submit in our culture is a dirty word. Some people hear it as a hateful word. And there are some good reasons for that, because it's often been abused. We love the bumper sticker, question authority. We don't love the word submit. 
But for a Christian, submission is inescapable. And this is the first point I want to make this morning. Before we talk about how submission is played out in marriage, we really need to remember and believe that everyone is called to submission. This is our common calling as Christians. Last week, we were looking at what it means to be filled with the Holy Spirit in verse 18. And we saw in verse 21 that one of the marks of being filled with the Holy Spirit is submission. Not putting yourself in your own interests first, but willingly placing yourself under others where it is appropriate. The Spirit is a humble spirit. Those who are filled with him will be marked by humility and love and meekness and a willingness to submit in relationships. So whether you're male or female, young or old, rich or poor, powerful or in a subservient position, we need to remember what's the core of our identity as Christians. David Pollison says that at the core of our identity, every Christian is a wife, every Christian is a child, and every Christian is a slave. You may be a man, but if you're a Christian, you're a wife. You may have kids, but you're a child. You may have other people who answer to you, but you're a slave. So let's get a hold of that. Christians, you are first and foremost wife. I know that might feel strange, men, but we are part of the body of Christ, which means we are the bride of Christ. Jesus is the bridegroom. And that means we are called to be submissive in marriage to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We are called to fear him, to live in submission to him at all times and in every way. Another part of our core identity as Christians is that you and I are child, beloved by the Father, children of God. We are called to honor and obey our Heavenly Father. And this is helpful to remember when you have children who are called to honor and obey you. You're in the same boat as they are. You too are a child of your Heavenly Father. A third part of your core identity as a Christian is that you are slave. It doesn't matter if you're the CEO of a Fortune 500 company and you've got all kinds of people who answer to you. You as a Christian are a slave of Christ. You are called to fear him and obey him in the way you conduct yourself in the workplace, in the way you treat your employees. So can you see what I mean when I say every one of us is called to submission? As Christians, we have a commander-in-chief, and that's why it says in verse 21, submitting to one another in the fear of Christ. We are to see ourselves at all times as subordinate to the Lord Jesus Christ. And as his subordinates, God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ love us, they provide for us, they pay attention to our needs, they show us mercy, they protect us, and they build us up. And the closer we get to Jesus, the more we want to submit every part of our lives to his authority. If he tells us to submit to the governing authorities, we say, yes, dear Lord, gladly. 
When he tells us to submit to our employers, we will want to please him and to magnify him in how we do that. When he tells us to submit to the leaders in church so that their shepherding will be a joy and not a burden, we say, yes, Savior, we want to follow you. And when he tells the leaders, the elders of the church, to submit to one another, they say, yes, Lord, we're under your command. The more we practice submission in Christ, the more we learn like him, to say no to self, no to the world, no to the flesh, no to the devil, the more we do that, something beautiful starts to happen. We become more and more like Jesus in his submission and also in his leadership. As David Pollison said it, good subjects grow masterly. We become like our teacher we become like our master. We become like Jesus in his submission and in his leadership as we follow him. So let's not be repelled by this word submission. Let's remember that when Jesus calls us to submit, he's not calling us to do anything that he hasn't already done before us. Jesus' whole life was one of submission to his father. He said in John 4, verse 34, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. In John 5, verse 30, he said, I can do nothing on my own. I judge only as I hear, and my judgment is just, because I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Jesus' whole life was a training ground for the Garden of Gethsemane, where he was faced with the severest test of submission. And he pleaded with his father, Father, if it's possible, please take this cup from me. Nevertheless, he submitted. Not my will, but yours be done. And he became obedient even to the point of death, death on a cross. So Michael Kruger is absolutely correct when he says this. Submission is not a female virtue. It is a Christian virtue. When we as Christians, both male and female, deny ourselves and submit ourselves to those in authority over us, we are doing something distinctively Christ-like. Whenever we say, not as I will, but as you will, we are acting like Jesus. Which means, men, submission is for us. It is a painful and a pitiful sight to see a rebellious, self-willed man complaining that his wife is not submissive to him. And how discouraging it must be for wives who are called to be submissive in marriage to husbands who refuse to be submissive to the authorities in their life. A man who will not submit to Christ by submitting to the authorities that Christ has placed over him, that man is going to be a very poor leader of the people that God is calling him to lovingly lead. So before we talk about submission in marriage, Men, take a look at yourself, your own practice of submission. Do the people in your life 
who are called to submit to you see a compelling and attractive example of submission in you and from you. It's not easy to submit. It requires death to self. It's a lot easier to submit to someone who's learning to practice it himself. When you die to self and you submit to where Jesus is calling you to be submissive, it will also help you be more sympathetic and kinder to those who are called to submit to you. So we've seen that all of us are called to submit. Children, uh, God may be calling many of you someday to become married. That might be hard to imagine. Uh, He might not call all of you to do it. You don't need to be married to have a happy life. You only need to have Jesus. But if God is calling you to be married someday, one of the ways you can prepare to be a good husband or a good wife is by learning now to be submissive to those who are in authority over you. Learn to be submissive. That's the first point this morning. We all have a common calling as Christians. Every one of us is called to submit. I love how David Pollison says this. If you aim for submission when Christ calls you to submission, your life will thrive. All right, so we have this common calling. It needs to color. It needs to condition all our relationships. But Jesus also gives us particular callings in our various roles in life. The common calling never changes, but the particular calling does change from role to role. And this holds true in marriage. So what is our particular calling in marriage? This morning in the minutes that remain, we're going to focus on a wife's particular calling. And then next week, because God has a lot more to say to husbands, we're going to focus on the husband's calling. Everyone is called to submission, but here's our second point this morning. In marriage, a wife has a particular calling from Christ to submit to her husband. Now notice in verse 22, the word of God calls wives to submit to their husbands. It does not call husbands to submit to their wives. It's not canceling out verse 21, but now we're going into the particulars. Just like in a few more verses, it's not going to call on parents to submit to their children or bosses to submit to their employers. There's a particular calling here, and it's a voluntary submission. It does not say, husbands, make sure your wives submit to you. There's no coercion here. There's nothing about power or control. Paul, God's word, is calling on wives to voluntarily submit themselves to their husbands. Notice also there are limits to this call to submission in verse 22. Wives are called to submit to their own husbands. The Bible does not teach that all women are to submit to all all men. The Bible does not teach that if an adult woman does not have a husband, she must still, as an adult, submit to her father or to some other man. This is a calling that is unique to 
a wife's own marital relationship. Notice also that this submission is as to the Lord. In other words, this is part of a wife's service to Christ himself. Then after giving the command and putting it within these limitations, Paul gives two reasons for this call to submission in verses 23 and 24. The first reason is grounded in creation. The second reason is grounded in redemption. First, God established an order in creation that calls for husbands to lovingly lead their wives and for wives to gladly embrace husbands' loving leadership. Notice the first half of verse 23. Why should wives submit to their own husbands as to the Lord? Here's why. Reason number one, because the husband is the head of the wife. Now, Paul does not elaborate here on the origins of a husband's headship. But you can read that story in Genesis 1 and 2. And there you will see that Adam and Eve are equally created in the image of God, with equal dignity and equal worth. And they are dependent on one another. But you'll also see that there's an order in the creation. This order is described well by Richard Cogan. He says, at creation, God made a wife for Adam and from him. She is like him. And after him, he leads her and for him because he was lonely without her. So there's this order in creation that, that Paul is assuming, that Paul is building his argument on here. The husband is the head of the wife. Now think about how your head and your body are related. The first thing you, you know for sure is that they are absolutely inseparable. You don't want to have them cut apart. You need your head to give direction to your body. You need your head to give life to your body. You need your head to provide for your body. And the body does what it does for the sake of the head. And they are working together in mutually, beautifully, complementary ways. That's the way a husband and a wife are to relate to one another. In a healthy, thriving marriage, a husband will embrace the initiative to lovingly lead his wife and family. And a wife in a healthy marriage will not resist or rebel against her husband's loving leadership. But instead, she will flourish by voluntarily and joyfully respecting and honoring and supporting her husband's initiative. This is the call of the gospel rooted in creation. But it's beautifully illustrated in redemption. And this is the second reason this morning. Jesus' sacrificial love in redemption is the model for a husband's headship and the motive for a wife's submission. His sacrificial love in redemption is the model for a husband's headship and the motive for a wife's submission. Look again at verse 23. Because the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, he is the savior of the body. Did you notice Paul doesn't say the husband is the head of the wife the way a CEO is the head of a corporation? 
Nor does he say the husband is the head of the wife the way a general is in charge of an army. He says, do you want to know what headship in marriage looks like? Look at how Christ is the head of the church, his body. That's what headship in marriage should look like. How does Christ exercise his headship over his body? Well, we saw in Ephesians 1, 22 and 23 that the Father subjected everything under Christ's feet and appointed him as head over everything. And here's the key phrase, for the church, which is his body, the fullness of the one who fills all things in every way. So we see in Ephesians that Jesus has authority and power over everything in the universe But Jesus uses all his wealth, all his bounty, all his authority for the good of his church, for the benefit of his body. He fills his church so that we are animated with his life, so that we are filled with his joy, so that we are lavished with his kindness, so that we are happy under his loving care. And he gives himself for his church as the savior of the body. He provides for his church. He holds nothing back from his church. He gives direction to his church. He leads his church in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. That's the kind of relationship between Christ and his church And that's to be mirrored in the relationship between husbands and their wives. Look at verse 24. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives are to submit to their husbands in everything. That doesn't mean that they're to do everything their husband commands them to do. That means that there is to be no scope in the relationship, no no part of the married relationship in which these roles are not to be carried out, in which a wife can say, well, I don't really care about supporting and, and building up my husband in this aspect of our relationship. So how does the church submit to Christ? If this is to be the model for a wife's Submission to her husband, well, how do we submit to Christ? We honor and we value his leadership. We say, Jesus, like a shepherd, lead us. We desire your oversight. We actively seek to build up the honor of his name. We are grateful for his initiative in loving and giving himself to us as our Savior. We want to build him up, not tear him down in his service and in his care for us. That's how we submit to Christ. But I can hear wives saying right now, yeah, David, but I didn't marry Jesus. I married a sinner. How do I submit to him? Well, it doesn't mean that you never speak up, that you never share your mind, that you never admonish your husband when he is wrong. He needs you to do that. That's part of supporting him. That's part of submitting to him. You speak the truth to him in love. It doesn't mean that you participate with him in anything that Christ would forbid because your ultimate submission is to Jesus. It doesn't mean that you put up with abuse. It doesn't mean that you turn a blind eye to sins that destroy the marriage. So sometimes a wife who is pursuing the best for her husband may need to call in the elders of the church 
to deal with issues. Sometimes a wife who's submitting to her husband needs to call the police to come and bring her husband under proper authority. And we've talked about this quite extensively in the past here. So I, I, today, I, I don't want to let the exceptions cloud the beauty of the rule that's being given here in this passage. Paul doesn't deal in this passage with the exceptions. He's painting a beautiful picture for us. The fact is, every wife in this room is married to a husband who is a sinner, just like Jesus is. Jesus is married to a sinful bride, and that's us, right? Jesus didn't let our sins stop him from loving us and showing grace and mercy toward us. And we must never let the sins of another person become an excuse for us not to show respect and honor to that person. Someone else's sins are not an excuse for you to forsake your common calling and start sinning against him. So godly submission in marriage doesn't wait for perfection in a husband. Instead, a wife who loves Christ and submits as unto the Lord is seeking to help her husband become more Christ-like by building him up and not tearing him down, by respecting and appreciating the initiatives he takes to give and to love for the sake of the marriage, even when his initiatives are flawed, by not looking for the worst in him or assuming he's always going to do a bad job, but instead by looking for the grace of God in him, whether it's common grace that God gives to all people or the special grace that God gives to those who are in Christ, a wife who is gladly submitting to her husband will be looking for that grace and seeking to fan it into flame. A wife who submits to her husband as unto the Lord is a wife who's aiming to do him good, not harm, all the days of his life. I read a story last month that illustrated this powerfully. Jean-Pierre Adams was a French footballer in the 1970s and 80s. He passed away on September 6th, just a month ago, at the age of 73. He did some amazing things in the world of sports. But in 1982, he was put out of commission. He went in for a knee surgery, and as a result of some fluke in the anesthesia, he went into a coma from which he never returned. He was in the hospital for months developing bed sores when his wife, Bernadette Adams, finally said it's time for him to come home. She slept in the same room with him. She got up in the middle of the night to turn him. She washed him, shaved him, toileted him, fed him, dressed him daily. She cooked his food, prepared his meals. She talked with him every day. She gave him gifts on special occasions. She exercised his muscles so they wouldn't atrophy. She rose with him at 7 o'clock every morning, and stayed with him until he went to sleep, hopefully at 8 o'clock at night, 
but sometimes he was up all night, and so was she. She did that for 39 years. When she was interviewed in 2007, she said, Jean-Pierre feels, smells, hears. He jumps when a dog barks, but he cannot see. Nurses reported that on the rare occasions when Bernadette had to be gone for a night, Jean-Pierre's mood visibly changed. People often asked her about euthanasia. Her response was the same every time. Unthinkable. For better, for worse, she did him good, not harm, all the days of his life. And men, many of you are married to a woman who would do the same for you in a heartbeat. When she married you, she devoted herself in body and in soul to doing you good and not harm all the days of your life. I know I'm married to such a wife. I've experienced her care and her blessing and her support and her wisdom, her counsel, her encouragement. Doing me good, not harm, through 30 years of marriage. I trust Kate way more than I trust myself. No one builds me up, no one helps me, no one counsels me, no one imparts wisdom to me like Kate does. She's invaluable to me. And I have the additional benefit by the grace of God of knowing what it feels like to almost lose her when she was very, very sick. I went well over a year, every day, just about every waking hour, with the thought of, God, are you going to keep her with me? Would you please show mercy? Would you please preserve her life? And God has been so merciful. I wish I could say after going through all of that, that we've never had a fight or an argument since then. But we're not in heaven yet. But what I can say is this. When I do find myself feeling harsh or impatient or angry toward my dear wife, I feel extremely foolish and ungrateful. And by the grace of God, I quickly repent. Because a wife who submits to her husband the way the church submits to Christ is a treasure 
to be cherished. Men, cherish such a wife. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, as wives, we failed so often to submit to your loving leadership and your purposes for us. And in our folly as husbands, we have often been unkind and unloving toward our wives. But we dare to draw near to you now, Lord, and we remember our core identity from heaven you came and sought us to be your holy bride. And with your own blood you bought us, and for our lives you died. You died to make us holy without spot or blemish. And one day you will rejoice over us as a bridegroom rejoices over his bride. And you will say, we will hear you say, you are altogether beautiful, my love. There is no flaw in you. It's all because of what you've done for us on the cross, Jesus. So Lord, no matter how bad we've been in our marriages, in you, there's no reason to despair. And Lord, no matter how good we've been in our marriages, our only cause to boast is in you. So magnify your cross before our eyes as we sing and as we taste and see at the table the riches of your grace and your love. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.